As we stand, let's pray. Father God, please would you take your word. Give us wisdom. Help us to know how to understand it and help us to know how to do it. Amen. Would you please be seated. What does Jesus mean when he says that we should give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's? Has he just answered a difficult question in a very clever way in order to get out of trouble? He doesn't actually, though, say anything. It is a very clever answer, and it's a very difficult question. It's designed to stitch Jesus up. Should we pay taxes to the emperor? The tax they were talking about was a poll tax. It was a charge that was levied by the Roman occupying forces on every individual. And when you paid your poll tax, it was usually because behind you, there were a couple of Roman soldiers. And if you didn't, you would be in trouble. So if Jesus say, yes, we should pay the tax, he is actually spiritually, hopelessly compromised. For a Jew, there were many reasons why you should not pay the tax. There was national pride. I mean, they would read in their history, in the book of Maccabees, about Judas Maccabeus, who had led a revolt against a foreign ruler who was imposing ungodly laws on the people and how God had blessed him. And many Jews, many, had actually decided that armed resistance was the right thing to do. And there was the law of Moses, which assumes that the people of Israel will be a theocracy ruled by God, not by Gentiles, with a Davidic king and the Aaronic priesthood. And there was the actual coin itself, the denarius. Hopefully on the sheet I've brought, given you, there's a little picture of it. Um, it had the image of the emperor on it. And Jews were prohibited from depicting the image of anything, let alone a person. And even worse, the coin claimed that Augustus, the emperor, was the worshipful son of God. So if Jesus said, yes, we should pay the tax, the Pharisees had got him. They would be able to say, this man is hopelessly compromised. He's a collaborator with the Romans and he goes against the law. But if Jesus says no, no, we shouldn't pay the tax. Ah, oh, well, the Pharisees have been very clever. They've brought with them the Herodians. The Herodians supported Herod, the king, who had been placed there by the emperor and his role was to be the role of the emperor in the, in the land. So if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to him, to, he was in big, big trouble. So Jesus' answer is very clever. First of all, he asks them for a coin. He asks them to look at the coin and he draws attention to both the image and the head. That is clever. 
Because on one hand, he's saying, I don't carry a coin on me, a coin which has an image and a title that dishonors God. I don't carry it, but you obviously do, because I need one from you. And then he answers by saying, give to the emperor what is the emperor's, and to God what is God's. Of course, his answer wouldn't really satisfy the real zealots who had chosen armed rebellion against the Romans. They wanted him to say no, clearly and unequivocally. And many of his followers who believed that he was the Messiah, the ruler that God had sent, would have expected him to say no. And this would be the point when the armed uprising would have begun. But Jesus had not come to deliver Israel from Roman authority. He had not come to lead a revolution or an armed rebellion. He was the Messiah, but he's come to deliver us from a much greater tyrant, the tyranny of sin and of death. And his answer would not really satisfy those who wish to be unconditionally loyal to Rome because Jesus has left himself wriggle room. What is it we should give to the emperor? What is it we should give to God? Obviously, it seems, we should pay his taxes. But clearly, we're not to give to the emperor, the ruler, everything. What is it, then, that we should give to God? And the people who have called Jesus Christ Lord Christians have always recognized the legitimacy and authority of the civic authorities. Paul urges us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for rulers that under them we may be peacefully and godly governed. In our 8.30 service here, when we use the 1662 prayer book, every week we pray for our president here, and because we're part of a diocese which comes under the jurisdiction of the Church of England, we pray for the British head of state, the Queen. In our prayers in this service, often we pray for President Putin and for other world leaders. And the litany in the Orthodox Church includes prayers for the leaders of the land. Of course, that is actually a double-edged sword. It means that we pledge loyalty to the leaders, but it also means that we recognize that there is a higher authority over them. There is one who, as we saw from our reading in Isaiah 45, who directs them, and there is one to whom one day they, whoever they are, will be accountable. There's a story that's told about Queen Victoria. You may know the tradition that when we sing the Messiah, when it comes to the Alleluia Chorus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, everybody stands. Well, the Queen Victoria was at a performance of Handel's Messiah. They came to that, they came to that chorus. Everybody made to stand, the Queen made to stand. But a courtier went to her and said, Your Majesty, you do not need to stand. She turned to him and she said, Young man, when men come into my presence... I, who am queen of Great Britain and empress of half the world, they stand. When I come into the presence of the king of kings and the lord of lords, I stand. 
And in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes that we're to be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. He says that we need civic authorities so that there will be stability and law and order. And please remember that Paul was writing to a people, many of whom were subject to an occupying authority, and the vast majority of whom were never given the chance to vote for or against their rulers. And Paul continues and he says uh, what Jesus says, that's also why you are to pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. So I'm afraid I've got really bad news for you. Paying your taxes, whether you're poor or whether you're rich and are able to work out legal or semi-legal ways of not paying them, is part of your commitment as a Christian. When you pay your taxes, you are obeying God. When you avoid paying your taxes, you are actually disobeying God. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, echoes that teaching. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority. And later he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers, fear God, honour the emperor. But if Christians have always recognised the authority of the civic authorities, they have also always recognised that there is a higher authority. That's why there were martyrs here when this country was the Soviet Union. The authorities demanded everything of people, both what was owed to Caesar and what was owed to God. And priests and pastors and people faithfully stood up and said, no, we will be loyal citizens. We want to be loyal to our country, but we will always put worship of God and obedience to his laws first. And the communist state could not cope with that. Sure, well, you may have heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Well, the book of Daniel is written to Jews who have taken, been taken prisoners into exile in Babylon. The king makes a decree that people must pray to him and only to him. It meant that people were to recognize that the king is the highest power that there could possibly be in both earth and heaven. And if people refuse to pray to him, they will be thrown into the lion's den and ripped to pieces by the beasts. It was a very silly decree, really. But Daniel, one of the king's chief ministers, is a Jew. He knows he cannot obey. He's loyal to the king, but he has a higher loyalty to his God. He doesn't begin a rebel rebellion. He doesn't rubbish the king. He simply continues to pray to his God openly, knowing that he will face the consequences. And he is thrown into the lion's den and on this occasion, God protects him. And as Christians who stand under the word of God, then it does seem that Jesus is saying that there may be times when we need to be like Daniel, when we need to disobey. We're to pray that that's not the case, but that in everything we do, we need to be controlled by love. Love for God and love for people. And if that is the case, we need to be prepared to face the consequences. 
Again, we simply need to look at the faithful martyrs of the 20th century in this land, of many others more recently. Think of Christians in areas, territories controlled by Daesh, persecuted because of their love and their loyalty to God. They paid the price, persecution, isolation, being sacked from their jobs, imprisonment and execution because they felt they had to be faithful to God. The thing about Jesus' response to the Pharisees is it means there are no easy answers in this. How are we to make those decisions? There's nothing easy about this. Was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor, was he right to be involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler? Discuss. <laughs> or you believe as a Christian that the place for sexual intimacy is in the context of the marriage relationship between man and woman. You believe that not just because it's in the Bible, because you think it's right for society and for the best welfare of individuals. How do you respond to the increasing and at times vitriolic intolerance to that view in the West? Or what should you do if your boss at work asks you to do something that you know is clearly wrong? The authority tells you do this, but... At the very beginning of our passage, the Pharisees try to flatter and butter up Jesus. They say, teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. That show deference to no one is a real put the dagger in, twist and turn and push it in harder. I'm not completely sure that it's true Jesus showed deference to no one. In fact, I think it's the complete opposite. I think he showed deference to everybody. He treated each person as someone who had been made in the image of God. This is the man who knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. This is the man who stood before Pilate and recognized that God had put Pilate in that position. But it struck me that those three qualities, sincerity or integrity, a commitment to the way of God in accordance with the truth, and a willingness to see the image of God, not on coins, but in other people, whoever they are, whether rich or poor, is actually the way that we're going to navigate this whole issue. It's the way to wisdom. I've put on that piece of paper a quote from a, a, a very early, probably a 5th, 6th, 7th century anonymous commentary on the Gospel about Matthew, about how it is that we should see the image of God and cherish that in ourselves let us always reflect the image of God in these ways. I do not swell up with the arrogance of pride, nor do I droop with the blush of anger, nor do I succumb to the passion of avarice, nor do I surrender myself to the ravishes of gluttony, nor do I infect myself with the duplicity of hypocrisy. I do not contaminate myself with the filth of rioting, nor do I grow flippant with the pretension of conceit, nor do I grow enamored by the burden of heavy drinking, nor do I alienate by the dissension of mutual admiration, nor do I infect others with the biting of detraction, nor do I grow conceited with the vanity of gossip. 
Rather, instead, I will reflect the image of God in that I feed on love, grow certain on faith and hope, strengthen myself on the virtue of patience, grow tranquil in humility, grow beautiful by chastity, am sober by abstention, am made happy by tranquility, and am ready for death by practicing hospitality. It is with such inscriptions, not the inscription, Caesar, the Son of God, It is with such inscriptions that God imprints his coins with an impression made neither by hammer nor by chisel, but has formed them with his primary divine intention. For Caesar required his image on every coin, but God has chosen man and woman whom he has created to reflect his glory. Of course, we're not going to get it right. We'll make many mistakes along the way. There'll be times when we're controlled by fear, other times when we're controlled by the desire for money, wealth, and power, and yet other times when we're controlled by our ego. We'll forget that as Christians we don't struggle against earthly principalities and power, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We will be complicit in things that we should never be complicit in. And we'll take stands on things that perhaps we should not take stands on. And all I can say when we look at this is that I am immensely grateful that I worship a God of mercy who is daily changing me and who is stamping on me and on you his divine image so that you and I and we together are the reflection of the glory of God.